welcome back to the first episode of Behind Startup Lines in this new year. As we turn the page to a fresh chapter, I'm here to supercharge your startup journey with game-changing insights and strategies that will empower you to make this year your most successful yet. I'm particularly thrilled about today's episode, as joining us is Natalie Nahai, a celebrated psychologist and renowned figure in digital marketing and consumer behavior. Natalie's work in web psychology is pivotal for businesses eager to ethically leverage behavioral science in their digital strategies. She's the brain behind not one, but two books that blend psychology, neuroscience, and behavioral economics to increase the impact of online marketing and our understanding of digital consumer business relationships. Besides her acclaimed books, Natalie's impact spans consulting for Fortune 500 companies, speaking at top universities, and hosting her own podcast, Natalie Nahai in Conversation. Now living in Spain, Natalie balances her professional pursuits with a passion for painting, having studied at the Barcelona Academy of Art. In this episode, we explore the importance of having a clear purpose and direction in business, strategies for building resilience, and the art of attracting the right team to join your entrepreneurial journey. Natalie will also shed light on practical ways to tackle self-doubt and delves into the psychology of winning customers. We'll also explore her latest project, Flourishing Futures Salon, a vibrant new community that you can get involved with. Get ready for a conversation packed with insights that intersect psychology and business, revealing essential behaviours needed to build a commercially viable company in today's digital age. I think you're going to enjoy this conversation. Here's Natalie. Natalie, welcome to Behind Startup Lines. It's great to see you. It's been so long since we last spoke, um, just a little over a decade ago, I think, but it's great to reconnect and to learn about what you've been doing since we last spoke. Why don't you introduce yourself to our audience and bring us up to speed? Thanks, Phil. Well, it's nice to be in conversation with you again. Um, so in that time, I'll keep it brief to headlines. I've um, published two books, talked a lot on um, stages about the psychology of online behavior, consumer psychology, persuasive tech, marketing, e-commerce, values, ethics. Um, my personal journey has kind of moved me away from my starting point, which is to talk more about you know, the kind of psychographics and marketing tools to a deeper place where I'm thinking more about values, self-determination, how brands can grow resilience for the long term. So there's kind of, there's a deepening perhaps and a greater alignment with my own personal sense of direction. Uh, I've also been, well, in that interim, um, co-hosted The Guardian Tech Weekly. I've been running my own podcast, which used to be called The Hive and is now Natalie and I in conversation just for SEO purposes. It's just easier to find. Uh, and that's been going from strength to strength. That's five years. And I've just um, launched Flourishing Futures Salons, FF Salons, which is connected with the podcast, looking at how we can create a more flourishing future for all. Uh, and so kind of blending the psychology with the more personal uh, kind of inquiries into why are we here? What are we doing? And how do we leave the world a better place so you've you've uh you've written your books you've taken an art degree you you're an accomplished painter you've now got uh, a works uh in in a uh prestigious gallery and wh- wh- how do you find time for all of this i mean your your how you've used the last 10 years seems to be a hell of a lot more productive than mine <laughs> 
don't know about that. Well, um, I don't know. Like, I think um, I get bored quite easily. So I've always had a more project-based approach, I think, to life. I, my partner always talks about it in terms of, like, the monkey versus the octopus, that, um, that, that he's more like, you know, one project in the hands, perhaps a second project in the feet, and me being a bit more octopusy. Like, there, there has to be something that's stimulating in lots of different ways around me every time. And so that the... Um, the propensity towards burnout is definitely there, but it, I find that the having different projects, especially the creative projects, feeds the other projects together. So it's, like a, it's yeah. almost like a constellated approach to living. And I have to say also, it's it's easier when you don't have dependents. So, you know, I don't have kids to look after and things like that. So it's, I have the, the freedom, if you like, to yeah. be able to really manage my own time for the most part, um, which I experience as a real gift. So... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know what you mean uh, about the boredom. I think it's one of the reasons why I made the transition from corporate life into startups. I mean, obviously, very early stage startups, you're doing lots of uh, tasks that are outside of your remit or even your experience. And the intellectual challenge of being able to do that uh, and spin all those plates at once uh, is something that just made me feel really, really comfortable working in the, the startup world. Um, but that's where you and I met. Yeah, we met um, when I was working at Peer Index, the, really the beginning of my journey uh, in the startup world. Um, and you were talking to us then about uh, the impact of digital marketing. We were both operating in that space back in those days. Uh, today, I want to explore really at the whole psychological side of being an entrepreneur, being a founder and building a commercially viable business. So as a reminder to uh, everyone that's new to the show, this is all about really what it takes to build commercially viable uh, early stage businesses. And we're talking to founders, operators, investors about their experiences of how to do that. And as someone who has written a couple of books on the topic of digital marketing, I thought we could start with something that comes up in your latest book, all about the need for businesses to build resilience. Because resilience, I guess, is the number one trait that any individual needs if they're going to follow this founder journey, this entrepreneurial journey. Could you give us a little bit more context about what you mean about resilience and also how you think it relates to that of being a startup founder? So resilience is about our ability to bounce back and come back strengthened when we confront adversity. And there are many different ways to do this. But I think what I've learned especially more recently, personally, is that it's much, much easier to do when we're doing it with other people. Um, for a long while, I've been quite a lone wolf, and I think there's all sorts of reasons for that, but there's there's a false... Um, it's like a story that we tell ourselves, and I think especially in the West, in the UK, in the States, of like these these icons who go on to be you know trailblazers, and um, there's a sense of heightened individualization and people doing it by themselves, for themselves. And actually, the most resilient people I know are the ones that are embedded within um, communities that share, that help one another. And this is the same within business, right? So within organizations, if you have a culture which invites people to bring their creativity to work, to take risks, to be um, candid obviously sort of respectfully candid, but to have robust exchange, 
there's there's going to be a greater sense of resilience, of possibility of being able to change when things need to happen more quickly. If things aren't working, the adaptability comes from that from that kind of constellated approach. And so I think resilience really, if we're thinking about it on a deeper level, it's how do we adapt together in response to something which is challenging us so that we can um, overcome the immediate challenges and strengthen ourselves for the future. Okay. Um, and you can do that, obviously, with the people you surround yourself with in the business. So this idea that we can go a lot further when we take people with us, but it's about surrounding yourself with the right type of people, whether they're employees or whether they're mentors or whether they're coaches. What have you seen work well for uh, the entrepreneurs that you know in, in your circles when it either comes to building that community spirit within their company or even getting external help? So I have quite a few friends who are founders of larger companies. I'm basically still fairly solo, although I do have some projects coming up. But the ones that have built businesses, um, initially, when you're trying to gather people around you, there has to be, or at least the things that I've seen work, there has to be uh, a kind of a vision that is exciting for people, the sense of tapping into a future idea that's going to cultivate the sense of longing, of excitement, of... Um, energy so there has to be some kind of sense of mission and then it's a question of as your company evolves and matures and the people that you hired in maybe at the start of their careers and they could afford to get a slightly lower wage than others because they believed in the mission how do you then help them to grow so giving them greater self-determination giving them a bit bit more agency a sense of up upskilling and belonging and then there comes a point where a lot of the people who you support to grow and mature and develop their skills they're going to want to take a different path and leave so then it's also how do you deal with the endings of those chapters in a way that is compassionate and um, that allows you to retain those relationships into the future because I think often it can be very easy to fall into the trap of being short-sighted and saying oh god you know worked with this person for x number of years and now they've left whereas actually if you have treated that leaving moment with the respect and honoring that it deserves those people can be some of your greatest advocates and it's not that they've left left it's just that they've gone on to different things so there's always that sense of continuity and change and adaptation and maybe that's the key thing it's how do you keep clear-sighted about your current situation and reality while also sort of being aware of the legacy that the kind of the path that you've that you've followed and the futures that are available to you. So it's kind of keeping that more peripheral perspective in place at any given time. Okay, there are two things there that I'd like to dive a little bit deeper into. Um, the first is this idea that obviously as founders, you have a clear mission, it, perhaps even a purpose. You're driven by that purpose to solve an existing problem. That ne isn't necessarily what drives people to come and work for you, although you, you articulated beautifully by saying it's a mission and they're given the agency to have responsibility perhaps beyond their experience or or their uh, direct field. Uh, but one of the things that founders will often say to me is that the sense of urgency and the drive that they have driven by this purpose doesn't necessarily translate to the people in their teams. Um, and that's a frustration and it can manifest itself just in, in the pace at which people work. Um, have you seen that similarly in your work? And, and if so, what can founders do to, I guess, step it up a gear. So I have worked with people to bring them in to do certain things with me. I haven't hired people directly as employees, um, but then also thinking about people who've had to restructure their companies 
I think it's probably useful to talk about extrinsic and intrinsic motivation here. So when you look at the ways in which people are moved to engage in a task, if they're intrinsically motivated, it's this sense of this task is meaningful to me. Yeah. It's inherently rewarding. I find it stimulating. It's appealing just for the sake of doing it. So for me, a task like that might be conversations like this, where actually I get a lot of enrichment and joy from being in conversation. Now, what's curious is when you, and there's a study that I read about this with children doing art, and obviously being an artist, this is quite close to my heart. There was a group of kids who were, who were doing their art. And if they were left to their own devices, they rated the activity as really enjoyable and they wanted to do it for the sake of it. As soon as they start getting feedback, reinforcement, praise, or um, it could also be money, the intrinsic motivation dropped, even though it was the same stuff, they were same, still free to do what they wanted to do, because it was then attached to an external validation or response, the intrinsic motivation dropped. And so then that leaves us with quite a complex set of factors, right? So if you have highly motivated, intrinsically motivated employees, but you're also obviously having to pay them, that conflict is going to come up potentially. And so then the question is, what can you give them that is aligned with a deeper set of values that kind of compensates for that. And so in the um, in the most recent book, Business Unusual, I remember re researching various companies. And one of the things that we found or that I found that was really present was if you give people greater freedom, which is something that most of us yearn for, but don't necessarily have. Or, for instance, in the States, if you increase their minimum wage, so they're not having to live precariously so they can afford to move closer into the city at that time if you're having to go into the office or you can afford better health care it's kind of figuring out what are the things that are meaningful to those people that other companies perhaps don't give them that perhaps they're not telling you that they need but shows them that they're valued so that they can come up to work and be less stressed about all of those other things so it's it's taking a comprehensive approach I think that really works in the long run and key to that, of course, is culture, is the, the working environment that you create, because you don't pay people as much. Uh, you require them probably to work longer uh, on more challenging uh, topics um, with a higher degree of uncertainty. But if you can build that right culture in the business, then people, you know, a mission backed by culture is a very powerful motivator for anybody joining you on this journey. Yeah. Very much. And I think especially when there's the possibility for personal development and growth um, and then figuring out what's important to people. So I think the other thing also to say is that it's we tend to prefer to spend time with people who are similar to us. Right. And this is just a it's just a bias and you just got to see it as a bias. And that's just the way things are. However, it doesn't have to be the way that you make your decisions. And so when you're hiring, and this is sort of mentors that told me about this, they're like, look, the stuff that you need to be done that you don't enjoy doing will be done by someone who enjoys doing those things and is necessarily probably going to be different to you. So write down the tasks that need to be done that you don't enjoy and then find someone who perhaps in my case might be very detail oriented or they might be much better at um, structuring workflows or you know chronology. Like I'm used to balancing lots of things, but in terms of putting down a plan, getting it in an Excel, Excel spreadsheet, like I can do it, but I'm not very good at it. No, it's, it's not very fun. So there's also that thing of being aware of what you naturally gravitate towards and then not hiring from that place. Just because it feels good doesn't mean it's the right choice. So making sure you get feedback about what's missing in your team, what right. traits, what capacities, and then being very intentional about hire, hiring someone based on those tasks. So not just kind of off the back of 
yeah, I chatted with this person, they seem nice, but actually can they fulfill the task even if relationally it takes a little bit more work for you to actually kind of connect with them? And that's one of the key differences, isn't it, between working in an early stage company and corporate. So I remember when I made my transition to working in my first startup, we were, I think, no more than probably 12 or 13 people. And suddenly we're sitting down having meetings about culture and about the way we want to operate. And as someone who'd worked in big corporations, big media companies, where the culture was already established, to be sitting there thinking, what, you know, why, why do we need to do this? I didn't even see the, the need for it until... Until push comes to shove and you've got to deal with these high-pressure situations which are unbearable in uh, startups, then you go, okay, that's culture. I mean, does it evolve over time or is it something you can sit down and plan like like we did back in the day? I think it's a combination of both. I mean, it's, it's dependent on how much awareness the founders have about their impact on others. And obviously that depends on the individual and the stage of life and their own personal journey. But... The ideal really is that you you have founders that are self-aware, that recognize their weak points, that, I mean, ideally have had some form of self-inquiry, whether that's therapy or some kind of investigative process where they know where their blind spots are. So even if even if they can't be aware of all of their blind spots, to know that they have some, there's a humility there. Um, and getting certain specific things in place. So psychological safety, for instance, which Amy C. Emerson writes a lot about, she's a pioneer in that, in that space, being able to create a space in which people are willing and welcomed to speak up, especially about things that are perhaps painful, uncomfortable, difficult, challenging authority. And that that can be quite challenging. Because I think often if you are founding something or spearheading something, whether you're doing it by yourself or with a group, we're doing it because we don't necessarily fit in to the existing mold. So there is a quality of the maverick potentially in many people and of non-conformity and of wanting to do it your own way because you've got the vision. And so that has to be tempered with the capacity to tolerate when people have different opinions or when they don't buy into your approach um, and being able to listen to even the most junior person and, and not having to agree with them, but certainly making it possible for them to feel heard because they'll catch things that you won't, right? Yes. So it's, it's also going to benefit you, even though it might not be comfortable. So building a tolerance for, for discomfort, I think, interpersonal discomfort is also key. Yeah, that, that idea that someone with perhaps a more junior individual coming up with the solution to a problem, uh, that's so valuable when you're working as a, as a new team. I think that that and also creating the environment where you feel comfortable about bringing up awkward conversations because there's a there's the whole side of authenticity that I found startup founders having. I mean, they're really good with each other because they share information. Um, they're very open about where they are on their journeys and what challenges they face because we're all in this together. We're all making it up as we go along. Um, but creating an, a safe environment where people can express their thoughts and ideas and in doing so, perhaps even come up with the solution um, we used to joke about this when I worked back in the day with Peer Index and Azeem, is that they was they used to joke that I was the deputy CTO because I was the guy that would sit in the room with the technical people and go, why do you do it that way? Why didn't you do it this way? And there would be the stunned silence of like, okay, the non-techie <laughs> in the room has just kind of called us out. But that's the safe environment to do that and not feel stupid for coming up with yeah. something. And, and I think that's the important part, isn't it? It's right. building startup 
culture. Huge. And especially, I think sometimes, and, and it comes down to this thing, and what you just raised is really important. If you're able to ask quote unquote stupid questions, the best teachers are the kinds of people who don't shame people for not knowing. That's absolutely fundamental. And so if you've created a culture in which people are not shamed for asking questions that may seem obvious to everyone else, you're going to be leagues ahead because then the person who has a different way of thinking, who's not enmeshed in a particular form of training or, you know, if you're someone who's highly techy, you've been trained a certain way or if you're someone who's very artistic, you may lack certain um, uh, sort of procedural knowledge. And yet that is precisely when you get perhaps quite innovative solutions to problems because you're coming at it from totally left field. So you want to increase that possibility for cross-pollination. Um, yeah. Well, it's absolutely crucial, isn't it? Because if you're really going to discover uh, either the right approach to market or the right solution or the right customer segment, everybody has to be involved. And one of the things I love about early stage companies is that I think people get it, employees get involved with them thinking, oh, they've got to perform in the same way they did in established businesses, otherwise they're going to get fired. But the reality in an early stage company is you, you only get fired if you don't aren't willing to kind of put, put the effort in and you aren't willing to learn and you aren't willing to to push forward because it's that set of skills which are more important than perhaps being the best marketeer in the world or the best salesperson in the world. It's that willingness to learn, um, which is most valued. So yeah. as soon as startup teams realize that, then that pressure of, oh, I'm going to get fired because the biggest risk, of course, is the business runs out of money. Um, and that's because not, not we didn't do yeah. the job, not because any one individual failed. It's like yeah. the whole team didn't didn't achieve. Yeah, totally different approach. You touched on this a bit a little earlier, and I want to explore further with this idea that as you're going along on the journey, at some point in the future, you as an individual might want to then step out of the organization. You've grown, you've learned, you're ready for the, for the next chapter um, and how that can, can be perceived. Um, I'm a big advocate of uh, what I call the sales learning curve, this idea of really the people you bring in earlier in the journey about how they learn uh, and how they adapt but as you move through the learning curve, you get the business becomes more predictable, more established, but it's also more structured. And those people who are highly flexible in the early days don't like being super, super structured later on. And then what happens is they leave because they can't handle either people being brought in over the top of them or the structure that now exists in a, in a more uh, established company. And yet I'm a big advocate of the value of that knowledge being retained within the business by putting those people back on the earlier projects, whether it's new product releases, new markets, what have you, because that's really, really valuable. But it's this challenge, I think, that people have that when either someone comes in over the top of them or the business reaches a certain point that they feel like, I don't want to do this anymore. I've, I've lost my drive. I'm no use to the business. And they spin out. How can we stop that from happening? How can we get those people, keep them within the organization, uh, perhaps in the way that I, I described? Mm. I feel like a bit of a charlatan talking about this because I'm not sure that I've got any direct experience. But I think thinking about it through the lens of behavioral science and that lens of, of intrinsic motivation, of feeling like one's of value, because that's essentially yes. what we're talking about here. Um, if, you get, if you're getting people hired in above you and you feel, well, hang on, I've put in the hours, I helped build this company from the ground up, there's a sense of ownership, perhaps a sense of indebtedness, then I think one of the key elements is making sure that for the person who's who's feeling that way, the founder has a conversation with them and says, look, this is why I'm making my decisions. Yes. And being very clear about the value that they, that they have 
um, and the esteem with which they're held in the company. And then also, and I know this isn't always possible, but one imagines that when the company is a bit more, more, more mature, more structured, more established, there is greater liquidity. You can have, you know, you've got a longer runway. And so maybe then there is the possibility to have the conversation with that individual and say, look, you may not want to be involved in X or Y way, but why don't you, you know, come up with an innovative way to do it? Why don't you come in as a consultant? If you want to be free and do other things, why not see if there's an alternative route where they can consult with a company, maybe they're on retainer, and they bring in um, expertise, experience, learning from whatever their next venture ends up being that they're involved in back to the company. So there's, it's about, again, coming back to that point of relationship, being super clear in your communication about the value of that person, having the conversation with them so they feel respected and yes. valued, and then figuring out what the next best course of action might be. Because it might be that they actually end up, if you if you kind of put them in a position where they feel like they have to stay, then it can also create toxicity. And that's what you want to avoid at all costs. Yes. So, um, yeah, there has to be a more creative way to, to resolve that, I think. And one way you might do that is to have that conversation right at the beginning of anyone joining your team. It's what does a, a journey yeah. look like as an employee in an early stage company? What does that evolution look like you know when are we going to be bringing people yeah. in you know being aware of it from the get-go then it's less painful because I mean it's happened to me on a couple of occasions where I've been I've been what I thought replaced by people when reality no they want you to do other things and, and you don't deal with it very well you know you throw your toys out the pram and you know uh, I think Steve Blank um, talks about this when he was a, a marketing uh, person early stage company and then getting someone coming in over the top of him and him not dealing with that very well. I mean, this is the great Steve Blank, but if he can do it and I, and it happened to me, how do we prevent it from happening? Do we talk about it earlier in the, in the employee's journey? I think um, what you mentioned at the beginning, setting expectations, being very clear on framing, talking about um, upfront what it is that the company's there for, what the potential journeys are to say, you know, we're going to have conversations later down the line. This is part of growth. You may choose to go in a different direction. We'll support you with that. Like just to be super clear, the framing means a lot because you're being very respectful and you're kind of giving people a heads up. So I think, you know, yeah, you've answered your own question. <laughs> well, it's all about this mindset, isn't it, of being a startup founder. And this is really where I wanted to, to explore with you today because it, the, the strains and stresses of, of deciding to take this on as a career, um, you know, You've already talked about the value of having a good support network, whether that's employees or, or external coaches. Do you work with a coach? You ever uh, had a coach to help you or a mentor? I have. Yeah, I've kind of I've had a couple of coach type interactions, especially in the last year. I think because I was not necessarily clear on what actually I needed in terms of the type of support. I found them of limited use. There was there was some use, but limited use. And I think that was more down to the fact that I wasn't super clear in myself of what it is that I needed support in. Now I'm a lot clearer. So in terms of what I need support in, it's more the logistics of testing things, scaling things, especially because I'm starting to work in partnership for the Flourishing Futures Salon and a couple of other projects. Um, that being said, I have had mentor figures for many years. And in that sort of relationship, one of the things that I found most helpful is that the mentors that I've had have often been people who really probe and provoke me into thinking about you know this is this is your one life that you get to live are you really living into your potential 
and is that expressing itself through your work so you can get different kinds of mentors I think I've had more existential mentors <laughs> it's just been useful but then at the same time it's like how do you ground that into reality um yeah and then I, I tend to find that one of the things that's quite useful that's been happening recently but also has happened when I've been launching books is that if you talk about your ideas with someone you, and you have to be fairly discerning, not like 100% discerning, but fairly discerning about who you talk with about these things. People are generally very willing, I've found, to offer you insights and advice and to to be generous in in helping you. Like it doesn't take much. And I found all sorts of people crop up, um, especially recently, and say, well, I would do it this way or have you thought about that? And, and so there can be this kind of, again, it's this networked sense of, support that's available to ask if 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 we only ask um so being candid about what it is that you're needing help with not oversharing I'm not advocating that but being discerning and candid about you know what it is that you need help with who you share with and asking for help um yeah. which is very anti-british <laughs> it's not like built into our culture to admit fallibility or ask for help but it's an incredibly powerful stance to adopt um yeah and then you invite a diversity in its best form, a diversity of perspectives that will help you to make wiser decisions. Yeah, I see that in startup community every day. Um, they really are willing to help each other. Um, I mean, these are hard yards that people are forging new paths into solving problems in new ways or, or opening up new markets. Um, and I, I really find the genuine entrepreneurs, the ones who are really kind of decided that this is their career, they're so willing to help, they're so available. Um, and that's really what mm. makes the ecosystem work. So whether it's a, you know, you need some help with finance or you need some help commercially, there's always somebody who knows someone that will will help you on that path. And of course, those warm yeah. recommendations are really important. Um, that that leads quite nicely into one of the core topics that we like to explore on this show, Natalie, and that's the whole idea of winning customers. So many of the listeners to this show may be just starting out as entrepreneurs, just starting to turn their idea into a product that would buy. Can we talk a little bit about what it takes to win those early customers and what you've seen shift over, say, the last decade of since we've known each other from the early days of digital marketing to what it's like today? And, and yeah, just that whole idea of how do, we, how do we go about winning customers when we're starting out? Big question. Um, so things have changed a lot. I mean, I think it depends who your customer is because there are quite distinct differences and I'm generalizing here, but th these are trackable differences between generations. So especially when you're looking at the difference between millennials and Gen Z, there are quite marked differences in terms of what their expectations are, how they consume media, how they want to be treated within companies. Obviously, there's a great deal of individual difference between people within that group, which is the same of any group. However, in terms of in terms of broad trends, I think a good starting place is to do your research and figure out who are the people that you're trying to reach and then doing kind of like a, a psychographic um, investigation into what it is that they're most interested in. For example, if you're thinking about um, Gen Z, there might be more to do with taking personal sacrifices in order to buy from a company that is more aligned with your values. So you might spend a bit more or um, forego a specific product based on the fact of it aligning or not aligning with who you want to be in the world. So I think there's there's that first pass is who are the people that you're trying to reach? What are the things that are driving them? What are the absolute no-nos? Um, 
And then how do you reach out to them? What platforms are they on? And I think still in what's curious now, I mean, this has always been the case, personal recommendations and referrals have always been, in my opinion, and with a lot of the research that's out there, the most powerful way to gain new customers. So referrals, direct referrals, word of mouth is really important. What's changed in the last 10 years is that now you have platforms um, like Mention Me, I did a, a talk with them just a few months ago, who are helping people to track you know, who are the great referrers. So it might be someone who only spends a small amount in your company. Um, say it's kind of, you know, flowers, bloom and wild. I might only buy something three times a year. But if I'm promoting them at all of my talks, which I do because I really like them and I'm not kind of um, getting any kickbacks, maybe I should ask them about that. Um, then as a referrer, you have huge power as a customer, even though you're, you know, monetarily, you know, Natalie Nahai only spends 90 quid or whatever and yet all the referrals bring great value to the company so it's also figuring out who are the potential advocates what they value what how you can get them in um and then really really doing good by them and this isn't an easy fix it's obviously at the beginning of the user journey it's going to be about delighting people but then it has to be around integrity over time so making sure that you're able to perform that there is um, a commitment to certain values or ethics that there's coherence in word and deed you know if you say you're going to do something make sure you do especially if it's aligned with specific values being consistent over time and then being congruent doing the right thing for the right reason and this is like the four c's framework i write about in the book that's also really helpful to bear in mind as you're starting out because it will build longer term um, relationship success with your customers because they'll see that you're worthwhile interacting with that's so important isn't it um more so now, I think, that it's harder to get people's attention through digital means. So we've been through this cycle of uh, you know, tons of emails, uh, crafted communications mm -hmm. via emails, built-in sequences that sales development reps pump out in the hope that they're going to get your attention. We've become oblivious to that now. Yeah. And really, the, the most effective way to connect with someone is your ability to be able to show the value that you can deliver. So in my world, that's about sharing some of the IP that you have to say, look, you know, if this helps you, it's there, it's available free. I ask for nothing in return for it. Because in the process of doing that, people look at you and go, that's someone who knows what they're talking about. That's someone I need to have a conversation with. And that's a very different relationship than, you know, are you in market to buy? Or you may not even be in the market to buy because we know at any one time only 10% of the market is ever ready to buy. So how do you build relationships for the day that they are ready to purchase a new solution? And it's through that giving before receiving mentality. It certainly worked for me in my business. How have you found it? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really interesting hearing you frame it like that. I hadn't really thought about it like that. Um but I think there is, it's kind of a willingness to show up and to be generous. Uh, and then, and I find that, you know, if you do it that way, you end up hopefully having a positive lasting impact on people. It's like uh, the, the Maya Angelou quote of, you know, people don't remember what you said, but they remember how you made them feel. And there is something about, and this is perhaps more existential territory, but there is something about the impact that we have on others in terms of how we choose to be present to them, whether that's in person or like this in conversation, where there's a generosity of attention, of listening, which is crucial, especially now. We're so 
conditioned to feel like we have to broadcast ourselves to be of worth, to be of value. And, you know, on the one hand, yes, okay, that might be true in the age of social media, but how many people really feel heard? How many people feel really seen? And and there are so many people who are in a defensive stance because they believe that they have to fight to be able to earn their place. That if you take the opposite approach and you really grant people space and you listen and you reach out, um, and it could be as simple as a as an email to your customers saying, look, we'd love to hear from you. What do you care about? What are your difficulties right now? And back to your point about that generosity giving first before receiving. And then in the long term, and we'll see about this, I've got no idea because I'm trying to kind of like, I'm pivoting a bit with my business. People love the podcast. It, it, it takes a lot of money and time, as you well know, doing this yourself to, to create these things. Um, and yet... It makes sense that actually, if you're giving these things to people and you're helping to support folks through their own journeys, at some point, there's probably a reciprocity that comes back around. I mean, let's see. But yeah, yeah. I yeah, and key. it's I guess it's it's what's driving you to do that. I mean, when I started out on this project, uh, I had no intention to make money off of it. Um, I thought it was a great opportunity to talk to experts, to learn from them, to share maybe some of my insights back. But one of the key things I've realized through not just these conversations, but also the showing up and, and giving a little bit of yourself is the the degree of authenticity that needs to come with that. And, and the way that I've dealt with it is I've never gone into a situation since I started my business thinking I've got to get a result. I've got to get an outcome. So when I yeah. give talks to okay. founders, I don't get up and think, right, one of you in the audience is going to actually hire me to come and work for you. I actually go in and believe that anyone, if there's one person in the audience that comes away thinking that was useful, then my job was done. And it's a little bit like how I started the podcast. I said, I don't know if anyone listens to this. I don't know if they even appreciate it. But if there's one person who says, I took something away from it, then it's useful. And then the rest is all just gravy on top of it. Um, And I found that that works very well for me because it takes the pressure off a bit. Yeah, yeah, it takes the pressure off. It's funny because I think one of the things that... um and this has sort of come up a few times in the questions that you asked today, is this intentionality with which we do things. And I think there's, I mean, if I'm thinking about back into like what what caused me to write the book, my early years were very much about, well, I need to make a living. How can I combine the skills that I've got now? It wasn't intentional in terms of what kind of person do I want to be in 10 years? What kind of platform? Like, I didn't think about that. It was just like, I could do this. Fuck it, why not? Literally, yeah. that was a mantra yeah. for for years, and it worked. And and then there's this question of, and it's the same thing with being moved to create a podcast. Is there's some kind of impulse that may not be well formed or well articulated, and that has its beauties and also its its dangers. The beauties are well, you just create something and you see how how it grows, and then the dangers. And I think this is kind of built into life in general, is that then as that path flows you might come five ten years down the line and think and it's also like, I think it's a question of stage of life thing of actually this path that's taken me up this particular mountain is this mountain where I want to be standing or is there something else over there that perhaps is now calling me and then how do you find a way to kind of take people on that journey like you with the corporate you know being in the corporate ladder and then choosing to do something different it's like there's there's something that moves us to take the skills and the knowledge and to move it to a totally different I mean still interconnected environment but it's quite a different ball game no? yeah. and so I think there's also this question of when do you listen into that um, to figure out when it's time to to change to pivot to move and how to do that in a way that is 
um, hopefully not too stressful and that doesn't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Yeah, and, and not being too worried, I guess, about where where you end up, where's the destination. Um, when I, I hmm. was fortunate enough to, to spend some time at business school and, and we had, there was a lot about leadership and we did a session once where we were giving a talk to a new team um, and the feedback that I got was that it seemed like my career was a little bit like a rock climber because I was moving from side to side when digital media had yeah. gone in that direction and I've done the same I guess for software uh, SaaS industry and and now I'm I'm very much involved in artificial intelligence and I've kind of crawled around now I know which direction I want to go which is up but I don't know where the peak is and I talked to founders about this in the yeah. early stages of starting a business is okay, you know you want to get to America. You just don't know where you're going to land. You know, are you going to land north, south? You don't need to worry about that. In the early days of starting a business, you just have to start heading in that direction with purpose and be prepared yeah. to change tack if that's what's required. Um, and I've done that in my career. And that's led to, I think, a much more fulfilling career. Because for me, that's the driver. Is like, do you enjoy what you do? And I've got two grown-up girls now, and I, I talk to them about this all the time. You know, do something that you're interested in do something you're, you're passionate about and it's a hell of a lot more fun than just turning up nine to five for a job. Yeah. I mean, does that mentality resonate yeah. with the, with the founders and people that you've worked with? Yeah. I mean, I think so I'm, I'm connected with quite a few people who are working in the health tech and climate tech space. And what I've noticed with folks in these, in these areas is that they are incredibly driven, passionate, clear-minded they'll pull late nights they'll but I mean there's also obviously the, the, um, the question of burnout but there is this sense of an orientation being very clear even though the exact steps are unknown so it's this sense of I feel really moved to go let's say in a northerly direction and it might mean taking a detour in this in this sort of sense or in that sense but but there is a real quality of clarity of where they're heading towards even if they don't know quite how they're going to get there. And I think that yeah. flexibility is really important because if you're creating, if you're trying to create a business which is able to adapt to incredibly turbulent, volatile conditions, which they're only going to get more turbulent, I think, uh, given the amount of ecological, economic, geopolitical instability that we're seeing, you have to be able to withstand a certain level of adaptation, of not knowing, of... Um, having to move swiftly, but also in a way that's not knee jerk. And I think that's where having a kind of a North star um, can be really helpful to know, okay, well, even if we're adapting in this way, does this meet a deeper criteria? Are we still, for example, creating a technology that's going to help um, regenerate a specific area of the world, whatever it might be. Um, yeah. So having that kind of the North star and the flexibility is a really powerful combination not I'm not saying it's easy I don't think it's easy and when you're going through that transition and that change it can be really uncomfortable because you're you're not getting the security you don't necessarily know when your next paycheck is going to come in or you know and that's not fun but if you've got the purpose and the meaning there people usually kind of withstand and then hopefully at some point succeed and many people do yeah it's back to that uh purpose again isn't it that mission um, if you're driving forward and knowing that the path is never going to be a straight line, you're going to have to uh, deal with a lot of obstacles <laughs> along the way. Um, in the core, we, we talked about this idea of being comfortable about being uncomfortable. 
um, this ability, regardless mm. of what the conditions are throwing at you, you know, just recognizing that's going to happen. And that alone can shift your mental attitude, your, your state of mind. And remember, the Royal Marines are always about this idea that, you know, it, it's a state of mind and, you know, you probably already have it. What we do is we get it out of you. That's so important, isn't it? When you're in the early stages of building a business. Mm. Yeah. And I think the thing to say here also is it's not easy. Like, I, you know, I talk about these things and actually I, I get very stressed by, um, by uncertainty. There's certain kinds of uncertainty, which I'm very easy with and other kinds, which I find intolerable, especially when, you know, there's, there's not, there's not a sense of, so let's say for example, like this year has been very turbulent. The type of work that I've done has suddenly shifted quite dramatically. Fewer speaking gigs, more consultancy, mm -hmm. new mm -hmm. projects. And that's stressful because it's like, well, what you have done in the past has not led to the results that had become predictable, that you'd counted on, that you just assumed was the, the way that life is. And of course, life isn't like that. Life yes. is remarkably unexpected and chaotic. And, and it's one of these things that, you know, how do you respond when you've recognized the first tremors of change and i think there's also this question of training oneself to recognize when these tremors are coming so that you can prepare yourself and so that as much as possible and again this this is it's tricky you can be in a place of creativity imaginative you know like an, an imaginative stance where you're not contracting because if you're in a in a space where there's a lot of stress and uncertainty and fear it can be very easy to constrict and make choices that are less helpful. And so it's also being aware of, again, back to your own self-awareness of your own internal state and thinking, okay, right, I know that things are turbulent. I know that they're perhaps less predictable. What can I do to get myself, perhaps it's about asking other people around you to help, into a space where for that moment, for a couple of hours a day or whatever, you're able to relax, relinquish control, think more creatively and find your way from there. Um, and I think that comes down to awareness, building in that practice, asking for help um, and knowing that you're also you're only human, being compassionate with yourself, which I find quite difficult sometimes. It's kind of this this castigation of I should be able to apply all the things I know about because I've been writing about it for this long or, you know, whatever. And it's also recognizing that, you know, we are only human and sometimes we're going to mess up and sometimes it's going to be too much and you need to be able to look after yourself. So, yeah, it's, it's messy, but being more self-aware and understanding how to make wiser decisions, I think really is, yeah, is something that we have to be very cognizant of when you're yeah. on that journey. Yes. And as startup founders, uh, startup founders never switch off. Um, I mean, I, that said, I did meet one on right. the weekend who seemed to be able to compartmentalize work and, and home life, but that's only because they were running a second business, oh. which was a and b So he was, <laughs> when he was doing that, he didn't have time to worry about his business. Um, but, but they never switch off. Right. I mean, that's just the nature of, of the, the makeup yeah. of these people that do that. Um, I mean, what, what, do you, what do you suggest people do then if they're finding, finding it hard to, to turn off or take a step back every now and then? The first thing is take time away from your device. Like that yeah. is the simplest piece of advice that I think one could give. Um, some people do like a technological Shabbat. Some people just spend you know, it might be an hour where you go for a walk or a hike and you leave your phone at home, like literally just, and, and it can be extraordinary, the amount of initial stress and anxiety that that can provoke, leaving your phone at home, what if someone tries to get in touch? So there's also the other thing you can do, which is to set the expectation in others. 
on Saturdays from this time till this time, I am offline. You are not able to get in touch with me. And just to build this, this in, because if we don't, then it's just this constant sense of availability and burnout. And we're not going to be able to be as creative or as anchored or as rooted as we need to be to be able to make better decisions if we're in that constant state of reactance, which is what being tethered to our devices elicits. Um, obviously, the, the role of nature is something that people have talked about a lot, especially in recent years. Going and spending some time, if you have access to a park, to a forest, to the seaside, uh, exercising, but not in a way that's punitive, like kind of going for a long walk or doing something you love, go dancing. It's, it's reconnecting to pockets of joy, to having time by yourself and doing things that you love that gives us the stamina. These are things which are not nice to have. They are fundamental to your survival and your thriving. And we've forgotten this. So when we're thinking about things like playing music or engaging in art or meeting with friends, having that time sacrosanct and protecting that time is what gives us the energy, the vitality, the anchoredness, the the creativity that we need to be able to really make better decisions. And if we can frame it like that, because that's what it is, then it makes it easier for us to make these choices. Um, that's fundamental. I love that. And that idea of pockets of joy. <laughs> I mean, that's something I'm going to, the, the, the <laughs> taking time out to uh, yeah, really recognize that this is okay, it's fine. You've got this little window where you can sit. And it could be, as you said, it could be sitting down and reading a book or having a cup of coffee or even shutting your eyes for five yeah. minutes, you know, having a little afternoon nap. I learned yeah. that from working in startups when uh, people working all hours and suddenly finding engineers under their desks having a little snooze and thinking, well, this would never happen in corporate life. But that's <laughs> the, what you've got to do. You've got to take time out. And I've, and I've come across some great tools to help you, you do that. Pockets of joy. Love it. What about self-doubt, Natalie? What about this idea? Because we're constantly wrestling with this idea of, you know, are we on the right path? Are we doing the right thing? Are we talking to the right customers? Am I hiring the right people? I mean, self-doubt is a bit of a crippling problem for many, many people. And, mm. and even those entrepreneurs that claim they're bulletproof, I think even they, they doubt themselves at times. What can we do to help ourselves deal with that and the little voice on your shoulder that says, this isn't working, you know, you're failing? Mm. I think, so one of the good pieces of advice that I had with coaching, and this was very helpful, was to externalize and write down these critical or judging voices and to give them some sort of physical form so that you can interact with it differently because it's very easy to slip into identification with that voice so that you feel like that's all that there is um if you write down if even if it's just like 10-15 minutes in the morning get the shit out just like write down all of the negative things that are going through your head and often these things will be very repetitive yeah just so you know what are the things that I most dread oh, I'm useless, I'm not going to ever get paid again, I'm not going to be able to do X, Y, and Z, I'm not going to get, like, whatever it is. Write that massive long list and get it out. And then that way you've got something to work with. And then in a different colour, you can write down, what are the things that I am most excited about when I'm, when I'm engaged in this work? What are the things that give me a sense of joy when I wake up in the morning? Why did I found this? What are the skills that I have that I enjoy using? What's the kind of life I want to live? What are the, the beauties of of this current moment, even though it's stressful. So then writing all of the things that are positive that keep you going and realizing that 
you know, it's a mixed bag, but often having those things written out so that you can relate to them externally is a really strong way of just getting a bit of perspective and yes. not being so identified with the critic or the judge that you then be completely um, subsumed by it. And the other thing, sort of years ago, someone sort of suggested this to me too, is to carry around a little notebook so that if there are times, and we all have versions of this, I think, where there's something that overwhelms us, like a sensation or a feeling, and it's really paying attention to your body. It could be a sense of constriction in the gut, of tightness in the throat, of heaviness, of the shoulders coming up by the, whatever it is, start training yourself to feel into when your body is telling you that there's something wrong. And when you have that, getting the notebook out and then writing, what are the things that I'm not saying or that I'm perhaps less aware of? And just jotting out words. And the, the exercise is really to help you to come back into your body to recognize when these states were rising because often we don't realize and then it spins off all of these thoughts and then we work ourselves into a really distressed state. Yeah. So finding those early warning signals, training yourself to do that, writing things out, it gives us greater spaciousness and choice. And that's also a really useful tool in helping to, to grapple with self-doubt and to grapple with you know, our internal weather systems, if you like, so that we're not making decisions out of stormy places. Yeah, that's really important. I'm, I'm learning to do that myself, acknowledge it, feel it, recognize it um, and, and let it let it pass, because invariably it is. It's like it's like the weather blowing through. You'll and, and interestingly, it can often be one thing that either you do or someone says or, or an event that happens that can flip your mind state immediately. You, know, you can go from this, it's not working, to, yeah, and then it's a cascade. wow, that was great, isn't it? And it's just like, oh, if only I could get a grip of my brain sometime. <laughs> I mean, you touch a lot of this in, in the first book, Webs of Influence. You talk about decision-making. You talk about the psychology of decision-making and influence, what have you. But our brains are really playing havoc with us. Um, and, and one tactic, just to add to your ideas, one tactic I, I've learned is, is to almost name this little devil that sits on your shoulder telling you you can't do it. Because once you give it an identity, <laughs> yes, yeah. you can tell it to fuck off. Yeah, when it's uh, when it's kind of bringing yeah. you down. Um, <laughs> exactly. Look, whatever way works yeah. for you, there are lots of coping mechanisms that we can follow to just, yeah. you know, not not crush self doubt because I think there's an awareness that comes with it sometimes that you need. That you're not going to do anything that's foolish, yeah. um, like you know, waste money or or harm somebody because you hadn't thought it through. Or as Elon Musk said uh, in the last couple of days, tell all your clients to fuck off. Um, yeah, these are perhaps you know a little bit rash, um, but yeah. So a couple of coping strategies there to to yeah. help you. Yeah, and I think also enlisting the help of others. I think one of the things that um, that I really really love and relish in my friendship group is that we, and it's an in, it's sort of international friendship group, but we've created relationships and a community, I guess, in a sense, where if we're feeling really bleak or stressed, we name it. And there isn't an expectation to change it. It's, it's that thing of, this is how I'm feeling right now. And, and someone else might be able to say, right, I get you. Do you want to talk about it? What do you need? Without it being this shameful thing, back to the shame thing again. And to name it, you talk about like naming the little devil on the shoulder. Um, because then it means we can relate to it a little bit more lightly. And I think the key thing is not to try and suppress or cut these parts off. Yes. The key is to kind of integrate them and relate to them differently because there is 
there is wisdom sometimes in our in our fears in our anxieties um there are often jewels that sit at the heart of these which if you just give yourself the spaciousness to be able to kind of obviously feel the fear but then think okay well maybe i'm fearing this because actually what i really long for is to be safe and to be loved and often these are really the fundamental things that it comes back to then having that spaciousness and that awareness means that maybe when we're feeling anxious when we're feeling stressed there's a way to get that deeper need met that alleviates the rest so it might be i'm feeling insecure because x y and z all right what's beneath that what's beneath that oh actually i'm not feeling safe okay what would help me feel safe a cup of tea with my mate so you call up your mate like this is how i'm feeling are you free for a cuppa and it can transform things. I know it sounds yeah. really simple, but having the wisdom and training yourself to be able to notice these things, it's not that obvious. And so, you know, developing that, I think, is a really useful, a useful skill to be able to have. And, and they're very specific behaviours. So in leadership, we talk about when we look at teams and their behaviours, we manage against behaviours, things they do. And I think we also have to apply the same thought process to ourselves it's like a behavior is writing a list of what how you're feeling and and the good things Uh, and I love your idea of writing lists I've used that a lot myself because often when you look at the list of all the things that are going wrong you look and you go okay well I'm let's say I'm never going to work again I'm never going to earn a penny again my family's going to starve and you look at that list and you go well how often has that happened in the last 30 years have you been in work not once what makes you think it's going to happen now Never. Yeah. Right. Okay. Now you can park that and you can move forward with the more positive things, but yeah. it is a behavior. You've got to get into the habit of doing it. Journaling, whatever works for you, exactly. get it down. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit. Uh, this has been a great conversation. Thank you, Natalie. And thank you for letting me dive a little bit more into the psychology <laughs> and, and human nature. Um, you were never going to get off lightly on that front with your background. So thank you for sharing your <laughs> your thoughts with me. But let's talk a bit about your, the work that you've been doing and, and your books, because uh, I'm I'm in the process of reading them both. Um, I think they're incredibly useful guides. Um, and particularly when looking at webs of influence, it, it, look, it reads a little bit like a manual for a lot of early stage companies in the fact yeah. that it's broken down into these sections of really understanding your audience, your customer group, uh, communicating well with them and then the, the one that's closest to my heart this idea of selling with integrity could you just give us a brief overview of what people get out of reading webs of influence and then we can talk a little bit more about your second book sure so webs of influence is really a practical tactical manual to applying behavioral science principles in a way that is going to help you to understand what drives people and how to meet their needs especially in an online context so it's about um psychology applied to the online world and so whether that's things like ux principles or understanding some of the pricing psychology that might be more appropriate to use or how people will process information so figuring out what are the best strategies to take to take there it's it's kind of like a step-by-step guide to the research that is most valuable to helping people effectively communicate online so that's the practical tactical side um and then business unusual it's more of a it's it's more complex it's more of a deep dive these are for people who are perhaps in positions of leadership and when i say that you don't have to be a ceo to read it you can be at any place in your organization and care about the direction of travel that's what for me leadership is about it's understanding 
what you have to bring into the conversation. And so for people who care about having an active role in their organizations, Business Unusual looks at resilience, as you mentioned. It looks at understanding the underpinning values of your organization. We often think about psychographics, personality traits, when we're thinking about what moves people. And I talk about that quite a lot in the first book. But in this one, it's like, what are the structures beneath that? Yes, you might be more extroverted or you might be more introverted or agreeable or neurotic, whatever it is. But actually beneath that, what's the fuel in the tank of that car is going to be something around the kind of world that you'd like to live in. And so we, we go into depth on that, uh, looking at things like integrity, authenticity. I interview 22 different experts from the world of psychology, like Amy C. Edmondson, um, to people who are working in innovation and tech, like David Rowan, to people who are doing regenerative business or sustainability, or they're in B Corps. And so it really gives a broader sense of what's the landscape that we're currently engaged in? How do we understand where the trends are going? How do we cultivate more resilient organizations by meeting a deeper set of needs? Um, yeah, and I think, I don't know, that was probably going to be the last business book I write because I'm, <laughs> it's so You've much work. Uh, and I'm interested oh, I don't in bringing, know. Oh, <laughs> I don't know. I, don't I, think, know. I mean, there might be another book in there somewhere, but <laughs> I'm sure there is. I'm sure yeah, there's this, this mashup. Maybe a mashup. That's it. I don't, but I'm particularly interested in gathering people together. And this is the thing that I've realized with kind of like the, the blending of these different worlds is that there's something that happens when you bring people together in a room with that shared value and a sense of psychological safety over good food, where you're bringing in different voices from different disciplines, different capacities to talk about how we each can bring our own sense of passion and love of life into relationship with others to create a more flourishing path forward. And so that's really, you know, that's where my focus really is now. So with the podcast and with the Flourishing Future Salon and perhaps with the future book, but no guarantees. As well, yet. I was going to gonna say there's, <laughs> there's a host of, of uh, tools really that you've made available. The books are great and they, and they, I highly recommend that people grab those and, and uh, have a look, but also there's the really useful online tool that you developed, the values map. Um, I thought that was really interesting and, yeah. and it goes back to what we were talking about culture, but then you've got these other projects that are taking shape as well. Uh, the flourishing future salon. Tell us a little bit about that, because that taps into the, really what we talked about at the beginning of this conversation, which is you know really surrounding yourself with people, like-minded people that will help you on this journey. Thank you. I'm so glad I get to talk about this because um, talk about passion and projects. This is something that I'm super excited about. So I started it with a friend in London a couple of years ago. And the idea really is to have um, a gorgeous, intimate dinner, which is curated with people from different disciplines. So it could be the CMO of a telecoms company, someone who works at AI's, at Google AI's DeepMind, looking at cancer research, a regenerative agriculture butcher, like literally people from different sectors that ordinarily might not cross paths. And so there's, there's a highly curated, facilitated quality to this, where people come together, they spend the evening eating amazing food, great, you know, drinking good wine, and engage in deeper forms of conversation that I facilitate based off of my years of work with the podcast, but also behavioral science. And they come away. I mean, you can read the quotes. They're so lovely. Um, usually many hours later, the dinners are usually set for like three hours and people often will stay for five. And the overwhelming sense is one of an expanded quality of, of what's possible 
of different perspectives, of budding relationships, of interconnection with people in networks that you otherwise would never have encountered. And so, um, yeah, so I haven't launched launched it. It'll be in the new year, but ffsalons.com is now live. And if you're interested in this, uh, please go check it out and, and let me know because we're, we're starting to take waiting lists for the next one because these are very small events it's up to the largest is up to 16 people but they're usually between eight and ten yeah so yeah and if you want to come oh i'd love to come oh it's on no it's on put my name on the list put put my name on the list i remember doing (laughs) things like this uh, in the early so i i was working at aol and Mm. i had this idea to get more involved in early stage companies and i got fortunately invited to some Mm. similar dinners um I think it might even be where I met Azim, actually, at one of those uh, dinners a long time ago. But they're great because you sit there, even if you think, well, I've got, I don't right. know anything. I haven't got anything to add here. And then suddenly people draw on your experience. You know, as a commercial person, they were like going, God, I have a real problem talking to customers. You know, how do you do that? Oh, that I can talk about all night long. Yeah, so you can, it's, I think they're really, really good. And, and I've made some of my closest relationships to do it. So sign me up. I am definitely coming to one of those. Brilliant. Great. So you've got lots of good projects on the go. Um, Just to wrap up the conversation here, Natalie, I have a bit of a tradition and it's to ask a few quick fire questions with a bit of a military theme. So that's the behind startup lines. Um, So should we have a go and see how we get on with this? Go for it. Yes. Great. Okay. Um, So let's start with your top strategy for navigating uh, the minefield of online consumer behaviours. Start with the research. Right. Always go back to the research and then ask your customers directly. Right. I mean, that's back to understanding your customer. And we talk a lot about that in early stage companies, this <laughs> idea of do you have an ideal customer profile? What's motivating them? Why are they going to change now? You know, research that. Um, talk to people um, yeah. who are either going to provide services to you or are going to uh, be the customers. Exactly. <laughs> um, in a digital marketing battlefield, what psychological tactics can businesses use to outsmart their competition? Listen more attentively to your customers. Reach out. Qualitative research is by far one of the most underrated and most valuable things you can engage in. Don't just rely on the algorithms and the metrics and, the you know, go and talk to your customers and you'll get so many more insights than you would otherwise. Brilliant. Thank you. How can brands avoid digital camouflage and ensure their message cuts through in all this online noise that's going on at the moment? I think one thing is to have a really clear sense, again, it comes back to values, of the values that your company is grounded in and then speaking from that place. And sometimes that means not weighing in on um, social media trends because I think one of the, the tendencies can be to be very reactive and if something comes up or there's something important that happens in the news to feel like you have to weigh in. If you haven't earned the right to speak on that subject and you haven't shown that you have um, the knowledge or the track record to speak up, don't. Make space for other people, support others to speak up, but don't weigh in where you're not uh, experienced. So be wise in how you weigh in on things and make sure that where you do contribute, it's aligned with values that you're grounded in. Great, great response. Last question. How can companies ethically use PSYOPs-like strategies in digital marketing to sway consumer decisions? I would say it has to be about alignment. So it's about understanding where your goals align with those of your customers and not coercing people to act against 
their um their goals against their intentions and so anything that's kind of like dark patterns where you're you're coercing people to subscribe to something where it's a free trial but then they get stung 13 days into the subscription I mean that's just terrible practice you'll decimate your reputation and you'll really shoot yourself in the foot so it's really making sure that um you understand what your customers goals are you help them to achieve them and you build up a track record over time then any kind of behavioral science practice that you're engaging in will be to support them in reaching their goals so that it's mutually beneficial it always has to come down to mutuality and reciprocity great advice natalie thank you it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you today thank you for taking time to to chat with me oh thanks phil it was a real laugh thank you Where can people find out more about your work? You mentioned uh, Flourishing Futures website. Where else can people learn more about you, your work and and support you? So I'm on natalinahai.com. I'm very active on LinkedIn. I also have a newsletter. But if you want to just find me either through the website or on LinkedIn, um, you can check out my art and music on Instagram, natalinahai. And then FF Salons, there's also the podcast, which is just Natalie Nahai in conversation. If you plug my name in, it will come up because it's quite an unusual name. So, um, yeah, probably those spaces are the best ones. Brilliant. Well, thanks again for joining me today, Natalie. Really enlightening and all the best with your new projects and future endeavours. Thank you. See you at Salon. See you at Salon. What a phenomenal conversation that was with Natalie. Her insights were not only enlightening, but refreshingly honest, setting the perfect tone for the year ahead. Natalie's expertise in web psychology and her unique perspective on marketing and consumer behavior have given us invaluable strategies and ideas to supercharge our entrepreneurial journeys. From discussing the significance of having a clear purpose to building resilience and attracting the right team, this conversation was a treasure trove of knowledge. I particularly love Natalie's practical advice on tackling self-doubt and understanding the psychology of winning customers. It's exactly this kind of guidance that we need as we embark on the next phase of our entrepreneurial adventure. As we wrap up this show, I hope you're feeling as inspired and ready to tackle the year as I am. If you are, please give Natalie's show a five-star rating and subscribe to ensure that you never miss out on one of these scintillating conversations. Thank you for joining me on Behind Startup Lines. Until next time, keep innovating, keep building, and let's keep this conversation going. This is Phil Guest signing off from Behind Startup Lines. Over and out. Out.